The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. We are in the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to spend several weeks in, in this really wonderful book, uh, taking it slow, a verse-by-verse study. And today we find ourselves going through verse 13 to 21 in chapter 1. So you can find your place there. I'll start reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is a huge passage of scripture. And if we're honest, we could probably slow down and preach six or seven sermons just in that passage. But I thought it beneficial for us to take this as a whole, to preach on this main, this main theme of this passage and really sink into the, what is really going on, because it's a, it's a terrific scripture. There's some good things in there. I want to remind you about 1 Peter. Let's remember what this letter is about. The Apostle Peter is writing to Christians all over um, the world, and he's talking about Christianity being a new way of living in the world with our allegiance to Christ and also our love firmly engaged in the world around us to non-believers. And so he's talking about a way to not compromise our faith, but also show compassion to those who do not know God. So it's a, it's a letter to make Jesus' followers both courageous and compassionate. And the problem, as he talks about it, the problem is that Christians often find ourselves in one or two of those camps. We're either very courageous in our faith. So we read the Bible, we know what it says, we increase of our knowledge of, of what it means to know Christ and be holy, and we, and we tell people a lot, this is what it means to know Jesus but we might lack compassion, and so we, we might have allegiance to Christ, but we don't have a lot of friends, okay? The other area where we might error is that we are very compassionate. We love those whom don't know Christ or are not Christians. We love people that are not like us. We, have, we are hospitable. We, it's easy for us to make friends with people of different perspectives, but we may lack courage. We maybe never really have to ever take it on the chin for Christ, so to speak. We never tell people that they're wrong, we never expose scripture and God's commands for what they are because we might be afraid of losing friendship or whatever. Our passage says something that should really make us pause. And you probably saw it in there. And it's a verse maybe you're familiar with, but maybe it's the first time you, you read it. It's the, it talks about a result of people that trust in Jesus. The result of people that trust in him will be holiness, will be a life of holiness before God and the world. If we truly trust in Christ, the result will be an utterly different way 
of living compared, compared to those around us who don't know Christ. Look at verse 13. As Peter gets into this theme, he says, prepare your minds for action. And if you have, if you're following along in an ESV translation, if you look down at the bottom here, there'll be a little footnote and it says Greek, girding up the loins of your mind. Literally, this means prepare your minds for action. It means gird up the loins of your mind for action. That's what it means to be prepared for action. The real phrase, girding up your loins, it's, it's changed here because we don't understand that in Western modern culture, do we? What does it mean to gird up your loins? You may have heard that phrase before, you may have used it sarcastically, but do you really know what it means? Well, in the ancient Near East, men and women would wear robes, these long robes, like the dresses, right? And this was suitable for walking, but it was suitable for really nothing much more than that. It wasn't good for running, for working, for uh, engaging in, in strenuous physical activity, for wrestling. You know, how do you wrestle in a, in a, in a dress, right? So they would gird up their loins, they would, they would gather their gown, their robe and everything, and then they would stick it into their belt. So they had a cord belt around them, and they would stick it exposing their legs, their bare legs, all the way up to their upper thighs, and they would say, I'm ready for work. I'm ready to run. So just picture the... Picture a runaway bride on her wedding day. You got that in your mind? You know, she's gathering everything up and then she's running. Gird up your loins. That's what it means, okay? And try to lose that image now as we continue, okay? <laughs> because of what Jesus has done for us, imagine what it means to gird up the loins of your mind in the way that you think about the gospel and think on the gospel and prepare for the world and the life that God has called us to live in. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we who hope in him should act in a different way. We should think in a different way. We should process information in a different way because of what Jesus has done for us. Gird up the loins of your minds for action. It says be sober-minded. You know, not only does physical drunkenness and intoxication hurt our ability to be sober-minded, to be thinking clearly. And that's one of the reasons, actually, why we are called to not be physically drunk is because it, in, it prohibits us, it keeps us from thinking clearly on the gospel. And so he's using this analogy of drunkenness and applying it to the way we think. He says, don't, be, don't have a mental intoxication. There is a kind of mental intoxication, too. It's a sort of mental laziness where we just go about our day not thinking clearly, not engaging with a mental energy as we ought to. You know, for instance, if you've ever driven a route a uh, hundred times, a thousand times from your house to your work and you do it every single day and you're on the freeway or on the road and all of a sudden you snap out it and you realize you've been driving for 20 minutes and you don't even know if you're awake or not. You know what that feels like? And it's scary at first. That is mental intoxication. It is this sort of mental laziness. You're not thinking, you're going through the motions, and you're not really engaging with the world around you. You sort of go to sleep in your brain. The Bible lovingly speaks out against living out our faith in the same kind of way, with a mental laziness, with a disengagement. It speaks out against a way of living that merely gives a, just a corner of our mind to thinking on the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. 
or a corner of our life to holiness and thinking, you know, this part of my life I will, I'll give to the Lord and I'll pursue holiness, but everything else I just, I'm going to turn off, I'm going to just kind of have a mental laziness, a mental rest. Hoping in Jesus. See, this is all about the theme of hope. What it, how do we apply our hope in Christ? It's not just a hobby. It's not just something we do when it's convenient. It's not something that we, we pursue uh, in certain areas of our life, but it's a way of living our life, every aspect of our life, with, a, with an active engagement and a mental and physical pursuit of resting in Christ. It's this kind of active alertness with both the mind and the will. And here is how we do this. Our passage centers on one verse, really, and the whole argument on verse 16. You should be holy, for I am holy. Think of that. I just want you to think about that for a minute. Be holy. God says, be holy, because I am holy. We should know that God is holy. We should know that we also must be holy. And that's his whole argument and the main theme of this passage. To be holy because God is holy. And so the first thing we want to know is that God is holy. What does it mean that God is holy? You'll see in the Bible, verse 16 has quotation marks around it. And this means that Peter is quoting a passage. He's quoting something somebody has already said. He's quoting God in the, book, in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. In chapter 11, the book of Leviticus is probably your favorite book, I know. It's like a broken record. You love, what's your favorite book? Leviticus, I know. It's your favorite book. So I don't need to tell you what it's about, but let me just give you a, a little summary anyway. Just Leviticus, this extensive ethical demands of, God, for, of God's people in the Old Testament. These rules to live their life in purity and integrity and justice in every area of their life, from, from their personal life to their family life to their social life to their economical life. Everything, every area of life was untouched by God's commands. And they were so extensive down to the minutia. Don't eat a grasshopper because it's unclean, it's unholy. Don't cook meat over fire but boil it. All these, from, from dietary laws to relationship laws to sexual morality to our, our use of money, to how we treat our neighbors. If you ate a grass, grasshopper, you had to wait like 24 hours before you hung out with anybody. Imagine that. All the, all the less time you'd spend with people for all the grasshoppers you eat. Here's what's going on in the book of Leviticus. Here's where it fits in. Because it's good to ask, how does this fit in to the gospel, to the, the gospel of salvation by grace? Last week we learned that that's the central theme in all of history and all of Scripture is that God saves us by His grace. How does it fit in? And here's where it fits in. God is holy. He is without blemish. He is perfect. He is clean. He is pure and altogether different than what is common. God is altogether different from everything that is common, everything that we have seen. There is no one like God. And God desires to dwell in the midst of people who are unclean, sinners, you and me, God looks upon His creation. He looks at His people whom He has made, who have rebelled against Him, and He says, I want to dwell with you. I want to know you and be with you. I want to have a relationship with you. But you don't understand how far that gap is. You are so unclean as sinful people, and I am a holy and pure and spotless and altogether uncommon God. I am infinitely above 
completely unlike you. And so in His grace, God gives a protocol for how sinful people will be able to maintain and relate to a holy God. And so in doing so, God is distinguishing. He is showing what is holy and what is unclean, and He is showing how a sinful person can relate to a perfect and holy God. Through these commands, through these rituals, through identifying with what is unclean and how one becomes clean, it's about God shaping a people that were altogether distinct from the world around them. Because this was weird. These laws that God gave were, they were different. If you were God's people in the Old Testament, it was obvious who you were. From, every, from, every, from your physical appearance to the way that you talked and dressed, to even in, 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 a, even in sexual, intimate relationship, the, the men were different than the Gentiles because of circumcision. Everything about God's people was meant to show them as a distinct, unique, different people set apart for God's purpose. The Bible tells us that God is God, not because He is a wise and powerful being, but because He is holy. He is altogether different. When God's people were in the midst of suffering in the Bible, often they would, they would ask this question. God, they would wonder, God, where are you in the midst of my struggle? Where are you? Where have you gone? Why have you forsaken me and left me? And often God, when He would want to speak to them, and He would rebuke them. And He would say, I'm not like you. I don't think like you. I don't act like you. I don't reason like you. I don't plan like you. My wisdom is not like your wisdom. Don't we do that a lot? Don't we think, like when something's hard, we think, what would we do to make this better? God, why aren't you doing that? Why would you let this happen? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you not been present in my life? I mean, it's clear what, we sh what should be done in this moment. And God would speak to us and say, I'm not like you. I don't think like you. My wisdom is much higher than yours. He is saying, I am so far above your way of thinking about things. The book of Leviticus might leave you saying, wow, what a lot of weird, outdated rules. But it should leave us saying, wow, God is so distinct, so unique, so other, so pure. It is amazing that God would have anything to do with us. And after all, who is like God? This is a question that's asked often in the Bible. Who is like God? Who, with whom can we compare God? We could try, but we come short. And what happens when we fail to, to think of God as a, as a holy God? We, we misunderstand Him often, don't we? We do this without knowing it. We say, God must be sleeping at the wheel. I, I gave Him my life. I gave Him the wheel of my life, and He must be sleeping. He's drifting off. Things are not happening the way that I thought they would have. How could He allow this to happen? No loving parent would do this to their child, child who they loved. You see, if God is my Father, and we are to call Him Father, as this passage says, we often think of Him like our earthly Father. God, I thought that You would do it differently. You know, my, my Father did this and left these wounds and left these things and hurt me in these ways, and I thought You were going to be different. I thought You'd be a different Father, but here You are treating me the same way. We misunderstand Him all the time. If God is holy, if God is holy, there must be a point in our life where the questioning stops, where we close our mouth, and we have to trust that He is smarter than us, that He is wiser, that He is holy, that He is completely other. 
that the way that he works through life and brings us through life is so different. To believe that God is holy is to believe that his love is far beyond any love that we've ever seen in anybody else. To believe that God is holy is to believe that his wisdom is much more wise and perfect than any other wisdom we've seen in the world and in anyone else. And you and I will never be able to find true rest and trust in our relationship with God until we trust that he is holy, that he is other, that he is pure and perfect. See, the Bible is not just another book on the bookshelf. God is not just another counselor among other counselors. God is not just another a wise voice. He's holy. He's utter, utterly separate. And if God is holy, this is where Peter's going with this, if God is holy, then we cannot look at any part in our life and say, God, this is yours. This is the part of life that I give to you. And then this part of my life belongs to me. If God is holy, our life can't be compartmentalized. It can't be broken up into different segments, into holy things and common things. See, this is my religious part of my life. And then this part, you know, this, I mean, my, my work and my money and my relationships, I mean, my wisdom will speak into how to live in those things. If God is holy, then he is wise above our wisdom. Sunday belongs to God, but Saturday, that belongs to me. God is holy. Like he, in Leviticus, we are learning that God is making a distinct people where everything in life is wholly devoted to God for his use. And this leads us to our second point. If God is holy, then we must be holy. We know that we must be holy. What does it mean then for us to be holy? Now, what does this mean? Does it mean the same thing? Does it mean that our, if we are holy, that our wisdom is above the world's wisdom, that our, our love is above everything that anything that's ever been seen? No, it means something different. Here's what it means. Verse 16 could be just as appropriately translated as this. Be utterly different people because I am an utterly different God. So if God is saying, be holy as I am holy, God is saying, be an utterly different people because I am an utterly different God. Be a different people. To be a holy people, there is no area of life that doesn't belong to God. There is no part of our heart that doesn't belong to God. There is no part of your life that's unimportant to God. There is no kind of desire that is not judged by God. There is no part of your bank account that is not seen by God. Do you see where I'm going? There is no part of our life that ought not be given to God as a, as a, as a living sacrifice to be used and devoted for His purpose. If you did a word study on the word holy in the book of Leviticus, you'd soon be able to figure out, probably in your own words, what it means to be holy. You would probably gather something that sounded like this. Well, to be holy means to be, to be set apart for God's use. To be, to be cut out, whether it's cutting out an animal sacrifice, whether it's taking grain from a harvest and offering it to God, whether it's uh, spending a, 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 taking a day and setting apart as holy, whether it's removing from something that's unclean, whatever it is, it is about, I'm gathering that what it means to be holy is meant to be set apart, to be separate, and then devoted to God for his use. So when God would say, take this sacrifice because, and offer it to me because it is holy, because it is for my use. It was totally and completely used for God's purpose. Because God is 
holy and uncommon. There is no area of life for the Christian that should be seen as mundane and common. There isn't your Christian life on Sunday and then your secular life on Monday. There is no act that we can do that is just careless and mundane. But Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober-minded about how you think about everything in your life. It is all important. It is all meant to be devoted to God out of love and obedience because He is different and distinct. We must be distinct and different. I'm glad that Peter addresses a couple things here as obstacles to thinking like this because I think they're obstacles for all of us. The first obstacle is one is our emotions. He says, do not be carried away by the passions. Do not be uh, conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You know, we react to our circumstances. Something happens in life and we react emotionally to it. And Peter is saying, this is an obstacle to you believing that God is holy and devoting your life to Him and being sober-minded. You get carried away by, the, by your thinking and by your, your emotions being carried away. Another thing is, a way is that we can fall into this obstacle is that we follow what is taught by those around us who do not know God. Peter describes this as those who are ignorant, the Gentiles who do not know God, or our fathers who came before us who didn't know what it mean, meant to be wholly devoted to God. And so we might be emotional. Maybe this is you. You're like, yeah, I do that all the time. I get sidetracked because my mind just starts spinning and I get carried away by my passions of my, of my emotions. And maybe you're in the other camp. You're like, you know what? I, I'm sober-minded, but my problem is I'm influenced too much by, by people around me. And both of those are, are real obstacles. And both of those are things that we fall into all the time. But Peter says there's a way we can counter these obstacles. We center our mind on what God has done for us in Jesus. Like Old Testament Israel, we are people who experience a past grace. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. God has done something in the past that has present reality for how we live. We are to center our hearts, our minds, and have a sober thinking about everything in our life based on what Jesus has done for us. Look at verse 18. We are ransomed, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This was demonstrated in the Old Testament by God rescuing his people from Egypt. They were enslaved for 400 years. The people were oppressed, the worst kind of slavery. They they were cut off from being a people and having a nation, and God rescued them out of there based on a sacrifice of his blood. And now the New Testament people, we, we look at God's demonstration of his ransom and rescue through the cross of Jesus Christ. We live differently because of the Bible. You know, we believe at Holy Cross, which we believe as the Bible teaches, that God saved his people based on grace not based on any merit or character of the sinner, not any good of their own, but we are saved by God's grace. That we believe that this is His choosing, that this, that this work of God to choose us and love us happened before we were even born. This sovereign choosing is based on His pleasure, His love for us, His affection for us, not based on any foreseen good that we might do in the future, not based on our record or our character, and even when we are faithless, even when our character fails, we believe that God remains faithful to us. So 
That's what we believe about salvation. And some say, and I recognize this, and I've even said this, I can't accept that kind of teaching because what it does is it produces a kind of cheap grace. It teaches that if God chooses us, and even when our character fails, God remains faithful, and we remain in his love, then God can choose you, you can become a Christian, and you can do whatever you want, and everything's fine. I can't, I can't believe that kind of salvation. I can't buy into that kind of gospel. And guess what? I can't either. And neither does Peter. I don't accept that kind of teaching that believes that you can, you're chosen by God in His sovereign grace, and no matter what you do, you can do whatever you want, and you could sin and go on sinning, and God will love you. And Peter addresses this here. Here's what the Bible teaches about what the grace of God produces, 17 to 19. We read a little bit of it, but let's read this again. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You know what Peter is saying? He's saying a genuine faith, a genuine faith in God and the gospel of Christ, his work for you produces in the life of a person a grace-motivated effort. It produces in the life of a person a grace-motivated pursuit of holiness. To put it clearly, the Bible teaches that we are not accepted because we are obedient. But because we are accepted by God's grace alone, we can be obedient. We can pursue Him with a whole heart and a clear mind and becoming more like Him as He is holy. This is the heart of salvation. Peter gets to the heart of salvation. How can sinful people have a relationship with a holy God? The answer is through redemption. It is through God bringing us closer to Him through the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus died for us so we may live in Him. And like the Old Testament uh, believers, we live, in, we live in response to that grace. So because, because God loves me with a, with a grace that is truly gracious, that is not based on my character, I am free to give my life to Him, pursuing obedience and holiness and to represent God to the world. The grace of God is contrary to human earning. And sometimes that leads us into error. But we should remember that it is not contrary to human effort. We do not earn our salvation. But our human effort, as a result of what God has done for us, is exactly what He calls us to. The Christian should be motivated the clear heart, to live a holy life before God out of gratitude for His grace because what He has done for us, because He has ransomed us, because He's died for us and lived our life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve. And out of gratitude, we say, thank you, God, my life is yours. But Peter gives another motivation. And he says, God is impartial. And I want you to remember that. God is saying, don't think that I won't discipline you just because I love you. Don't think that I won't discipline you just because you're my child. That's exactly what he's saying here. Membership in God's family is an amazing privilege, isn't it? We, we call out to him, Abba, Father. We call out to him, we say, Daddy. We can call him Daddy. There's only three people on the face of the planet that get to call me Daddy. 
That's a privilege for them. I want them to call me daddy. We get to call our Father in heaven, holy God, without blemish. As sinful people, we could look at him and say, daddy. And he says, yes, my children. But that should never leave, uh, lead us to believe that he will not discipline us. That, we, that, there is, that there's sin in our life that will go unnoticed. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. He doesn't turn a deaf ear to it. He says, I didn't see that. Come here. <laughs> but we can think like that a lot. I'm God's child. He understands. I'm forgiven for my sins yesterday, today, and forever. And that's so true. We are forgiven because of the righteousness of Jesus. But Peter says, but don't think that just because of that privilege, God will not discipline you for your sin. God is an impartial judge. Here's a conversation I've had, and maybe you've had it before. I see my son doing something. There's a bunch of kids doing a bunch of stuff. And I grab my kid out from a bunch of kids doing things, and I say, I don't want you doing that. I don't want you doing that. And then they reply to me, but they're allowed to do it. And what do I say? What do you say? But I'm not their daddy. I'm your daddy, and you need to listen to me. I'm an impartial, I am a partial father. I love my children differently than I love yours. I discipline my children differently than I would discipline yours. I would correct them differently. And I'd look at your children as they're being disobedient and be like, bad parenting. And I would, I would, <laughs> and I would walk the other way. Glad my kid doesn't do that. And I look over and he's like peeing on the floor somewhere. I am a partial. I am partial. My judgment, my concern is, is different. God is impartial. He doesn't play favorites. That's what that means. I do. I treat my children differently. God says, I will not turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the disobedience of my own children. Because we think, oh, God is going to punish and discipline sinners. And God says, don't think I won't do the same for you. See, this is different. This isn't a, an eternal security issue that we're worrying about. This isn't now a salvation by works. We're not saved by our character and our obedience. God is saying, do not become comfortable with a life of, of mental drunkenness. Do not be comfortable with thinking about your life as that I don't care about how you behave and act just because I love you and just because you're secure in my love forever. See, we can look at Romans 8 and believe that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God and at the same time say, God, I am fearful of your displeasure. Because his discipline is not excluded, ex exclusive from his love. And the Bible actually says the opposite, that he disciplines those whom he loves. His care for us as children so we see ourselves in light of our relationship of a father-child relationship, and it's one that should make us very grateful and warm and intimate with a God who is holy. But Peter says, let this be a motivation to you to be afraid. This is unique, right? We t this is an odd concept in Scripture. Fear God. And, and 
let me tell you, there are two things. When the early church began and flourished and thousands of people were being added to the church daily, there were two characteristics that the book of Acts clear, uh, points out very clearly. It says, you know what the, 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 was the distinguishing marks? They loved each other and they had all things in common and they had a fear of the Lord that was unmatched by any other, any other kind of people. They were afraid of God in a way that is reverent and awe-filled and sober-minded and clear-hearted. They cared so much about their freedom in Christ as newborn children of God and also about pleasing God and pursuing holiness. To a point they were filled with fear. The Proverbs said that the beginning of, of wisdom is fear. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We want to grow in wisdom. Do we want to be holy as God is holy? We need to have a healthy understanding of what it means to know that God judges our sin. He disciplines us in our sin, even if we are children. His displeasure is not reserved only for those who don't know Him. And again, this is not a, a salvation by works. What it does is this. It reflects an understanding of the gospel at work in a person. That when there is genuine faith, there is an increasing presence of obedience and good works. That there is increasing presence and manifestation of a desire to love God, to love others, to pour over His commands and say, God, I love you. I want to be like you. You've made me in your image. You are holy. I want to be holy. I want to be where you are. I want to know what you know. I want to be like you. And that is what genuine faith looks like. Fearing God is, is a biblical and healthy way to view God, and it leads to our maturity and growth. And it's not inconsistent with the unconditional, everlasting, unstopping love of God. Peter says, knowing this, your life should be, you should order your life considering a healthy fear of the Lord. Every area of your life. Knowing of God's holiness prompts us to a reordering, reordering of our priorities according to God's agenda. God, what do you desire? What do you want? And what is God's agenda? Look at verse 20 and 21 as we finish this passage up. He was foreknown. Who? Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God's agenda. When we ask, God, what, do you, what is your agenda? What do you want? What do you desire for me? God reminds us, my agenda is found in Jesus. That means our hope does not rest in us becoming increasingly relevant to the world around us. The church is, like, is really bad when it comes to being relevant. I mean, even the best church. Listen, the last two concerts I went to, uh, Garth Brooks and Michael Buble, because I love my wife and I'm a good husband, okay? <laughs> but you know what? Those concerts were awesome. If I had my choice to go to a music at a church or a concert, I'm not going to church. I don't go to church for, like, great music. I mean, you guys are awesome. I mean, <laughs> but seriously, like, you're not, 
If we are thinking, hey, we need to get people into church with amazing, we're gonna, amazing music, we're going to fail. Because there's always better music. The world can do better music. And we can celebrate that. And we can love that. And we can, we can learn from that. Hey, what are they doing that's, well, that's doing good? But we should never look to imitate our agenda around becoming relevant to the world. Same can go for kids. This afternoon, I'm going to Arizona Jump Time for a birthday for a nephew. That's so much more fun than anything any youth group can do at a church. If we're looking to compete with like entertaining kids, how can we look like the world and have fun? Have you been to Disneyland? That place is magical. As a Christian, I could say, that place is a magical place. It's awesome. I'd much rather go to Disneyland. I'd much rather go to Arizona Chum Time to have fun for my kids. And if they have to, and if they have to choose between one another, I wouldn't blame them. Go to Arizona Jump Time. It's awesome. Peter's saying, what do we, we can learn from these things, but what do we want to orient our life around as God's people? Are we concerned about being relevant to the world around us, to be like them, so that people will want to be like us and like us? Peter's saying, that is not your greatest missionary power. Do you know what your greatest missionary power is? The gospel of Christ. The agenda of God found in Jesus. Do you know what the world doesn't have? That, doesn't, that cannot offer hope, everlasting, eternal hope. You see, this theme, I'm going back to this because this theme of the whole book we've mentioned before, it's on the cover of your bulletin. It is about engaging in the world with hope and wisdom, compassion, with love, with kindness. It is about engaging in our world with hope. And Peter is saying, in the midst of the world that you're living in, do not forget what you have to offer that is better than anything the world has to offer. It isn't great music. It isn't great fun. It isn't, uh, it isn't being able to uh, build houses for those who need it. Those are all good things. But it is the hope that people genuinely, that sinners need. God is holy and we are sinful. And Peter is saying, remember, God's plan before the foundations of the world was to make known to you Jesus, that, when, that in him you will have life, that you will have it everlasting, that it will be abundant, that it will be full, that it will lead to the restoration of your soul and all of creation. Our hope is not in being more relevant. Our hope is not even in being holy. Peter starts this passage by saying, Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy, but remember your ultimate hope is not in that. Your ultimate hope is in salvation by grace offered to you by Christ. It begins with a sober reminder of holiness. And here's where I want to temper this, and then we're going to pray. Temper this in your heart as you think about your life. Be sober-minded in your holiness. Be holy as God is holy. Be awake. Be alert. Order your life around the agenda of God. Be like Him. Hate your sin. Like God hates your sin, and Change your life. Make spiritual adjustments in your life to be like God. But remember that your hope is not ultimately in that. It is ultimately in what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And there's something that weird that happens, that when you actually believe that, you want to do more for God. You want to please Him more. You want to work harder because it's a grace-motivated effort. 
thank you for what you have done. I want to please you. I want to love you. Dwell on that daily. Apply it to your life daily, and it will lead to an increased maturity. Let's pray.